Ah, sweet land of liberty. Our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. Blasphemy has really been in the news lately, especially with the release of Asya Bibi, convicted of blasphemy in Pakistan. But blasphemy is not limited to places like Pakistan. In fact, it is alive and well in the first world in Europe. Our guest today, Dominic Green, Life and Arts Editor at Spectator USA, also a contributor to the Weekly Standard, where I found his article about this blasphemy prosecution in the European court. Dominic, welcome to Freedom's Reign. Thank you. Lovely to be here. And I was going to name the court, but I wasn't sure I was going to get it right, so I stopped. But why don't you tell us a little bit about this blasphemy prosecution in the heart of the old world? Well, this prosecution began a few years ago in Austria, but the ruling uh, that caused the fuss last week came from the European Court of Human Rights, which is part of the Council of Europe, which is an umbrella organization of some 40-something nations. Not all of them are in, in union, but the Council of Europe's court has a major standing as a voice of uh, human rights law in Europe. And in this case, an educator for the Freedom Party in Austria, which has some associations of its own, she was running what were billed as seminars on Islam for the members of the party and expressed opinions about Muhammad, which got her into prosecution in Austria, because that's one of the European countries which still has blasphemy laws. Well, and let's talk about the content of her seminars and how she ran afoul of these blasphemy laws. She was specifically talking about, I guess, one of Muhammad's marriages, right? That's right. His third marriage, which in the Hadith, which is the highly uh, venerated commentaries on the Quran, uh, attributed as having been nine years old at the time the marriage was consummated. And the educator from the Freedom Party asked the rhetorical question, what do we call this? Well, we would call this pedophilia. And that led to a complaint being made in the Austrian courts and being upheld as likely uh, to cause civil disorder in effect as well because of the offense that it could potentially cause. So is is that the standard of blasphemy in Austria or in, in Europe is is the likeliness of causing civil disorder? Well, there is there's two questions there really, isn't there? One of them is, is the status of blasphemy laws, which is generally speaking, they're a hangover from a previous historical period in the sense that in Europe it was possible to say pretty much anything you wanted to say about Christianity without a serious risk of prosecution. You could also be highly critical of Judaism or indeed any other religion apart from Islam. And the background picture here is, of course, the population shifts that have taken place in Europe with large-scale immigration from majority Muslim countries and also the religious shift which has taken place. And we're accustomed to thinking of Europe as a continent which has lost its religion. As you know, Christianity is collapsing, in effect, from one generation to the next across the denominations in Europe. But at the same time, Islam is becoming more and more a European religion, and in some major cities of Western Europe, perhaps the most popular religion, in the sense that there may be more people praying on a Friday in a mosque than there are certainly in a synagogue on a Saturday or a church on a Sunday. And that means, of course, 
that when Muslims feel aggrieved, they can go to law, and then these old laws, which were designed often for a quite different era, suddenly become applicable. Well, that is a, a very succinct uh, summary of the new religious reality in Europe, something that uh, our listeners here in the United States don't often realize. And, of course, blasphemy laws arose, I think, out of the, the ancient conflicts between Catholicism and Protestantism. Um, yes, and, and also now, the power of the state. was The state emerged as the referee. And so part of the deal, in a way, between the churches and the nation states as they developed in Europe in the 16th, 17th centuries, part of the deal was the state said, we will take over law about everyday life, and in return, we'll guarantee your sector, the religious sector. And that produced blasphemy laws as well as special privileges often for the state churches. You know, sure. still in many European countries, um, people pay a tax, which goes uh, towards the maintenance of, of church infrastructure, for instance. So there's these very old... No, I think, too, there was a concept of Christendom, which we've largely lost sight of these days, and that the kind of bargain was to maintain uh, the kind of the majority Christian way of life in the nation, and therefore it was appropriate to, to punish blasphemers. Yes, I think so. I and mean, the idea of when we talk about Western civilization, uh, implied in that really is, is the old idea of Christendom. And I think when uh, push comes to shove in this kind of case, then uh, it comes out quite strongly. Um, you will find, of course, uh, Christian groups or Jewish groups or even Hindu groups in Europe coming out on the side of Muslim groups who feel that, yes, blasphemy laws do have a place in uh, what is nevertheless a highly secular society. It's not an issue that's going to go away, and in fact, it may become the key issue in terms of free speech in Europe in the years to come. Well, and I know that in, in human rights circles, there has been considerable advocacy for extending blasphemy prohibitions, and at least some in the religious freedom community, and, and especially here in the United States, have been partially critical and uh, trying to put a stop to that in terms of the work at the United Nations. Well, I think the United States um, is very fortunate. Magnificent things, in fact, about life in the United States. It's very hard, and you have to work very hard to seriously get yourself in trouble in terms of freedom of speech. Uh, European countries have these very conditional freedom of speech laws, and as you know, in the rest of the world, there frequently is no such thing. The United Nations, i.e. the General Assembly of the United Nations, you know, not the Security Council, but the General Assembly, which is the, the equivalent of a parliament, except it's, its rulings don't mean much. The General Assembly is pushing very hard. There's, there's a block of more than 50 Islamic states who have a, are pushing very hard to have Islamophobia uh, established as uh, a hate crime, a form of hate speech. And the definition that they would like to install is so broad as to include any kind of historical analysis whatsoever. So if we wish to have a society of laws governed by rational principles, we do, you know, as historians, have to apply a rational eye to the past. And that means saying things which might not have gone down well at the time the holy books were written. And this is a major, major conflict. This is a, a civilizational difference, I would say. Well, and I would argue from a religious freedom standpoint that the freedom to criticize one another's doctrines and beliefs and practices is an inherent part of religious freedom. Uh, Protestantism, um, for example, has been built 
for you know centuries on its critique of medieval Catholicism. This is very true, and one of the ironies here is that our laws protecting freedom of speech, which we think of as being almost secular laws, are absolutely the children of religious rights. The struggle for religious rights, you know, John Milton, the great theorist of freedom of speech, was struggling for precisely that Protestant right to dissent from established religion. So even the most secular person is now the beneficiary of a religious principle, which is the right to dissent. And part of the difficulty, we could say, of living in a highly complicated society is we have to put up with other people when they say things which we may find personally offensive. But, you know, now your accent is starting to come through here and betray you, Dominic, because, um, you know, we, we Americans have very dim comprehension of history. And, you know, you Brits, uh, definitely have, have a much stronger sense of history. I'm, I'm, uh, impressed with your citing to, to John Milton because certainly many of us who are Christians, um, working in religious freedom areas, we recognize that our whole structure of rights is really a product of the Protestant ethos that, you know, gave rise to Milton and subsequently to John Locke and had so much influence on, on the American thinkers like Madison and, and Jefferson, despite his lack of religious orthodoxy, was, was tremendously influenced. Uh, oh, very and, much, yes. You know, so today, here we have this wonderful American legacy of rights built on what's essentially a Protestant foundation, and yet Western civilization is rejecting kind of the moral and spiritual foundation uh, that its entire system of rights depends upon. I think there's a lot to be said for that, and I think also when there are rights, there are also duties and responsibilities that come with it. And therefore, the manner in which they address these questions, because they are sensitive questions, that the manner in which they're done is also an, an important question to bring into this. In the Austrian case, for instance, it's a very difficult case to call in a way because it's clear that the teacher of this seminar did not, you know, she had um, a priori assumptions. She wanted to prove a case, prove a negative case against Islam. On the other hand, if you look at the history of the struggle for rights and expression in the West, that is exactly the kind of attitude that established many of those rights. For instance, when Voltaire was insulting Christianity, he knew perfectly well what he was doing before he even looked at the books. He was looking for evidence to prop up his assertion. So, yes, these are enormously, uh, these can be offensive things, but the right to insult people, not the right to provoke violence, but the right to insult people is, is most definitely uh, a right in most European countries as well. The fear, of course, is that you get a mob of people on the streets and there are well-organized um, Islamist organizations who specialize, in fact, in precisely that. Uh, there is a threat of intimidation and violence surrounding the question of free expression on Islam, which does not attend to the free expression on any other religion or even any other political right, system. Right. See, I guess I'm naive as a religious believer because I'm of the view that truth can stand up under the most severe scrutiny. And so I was uh, rather amused when I started to take a closer look at the new atheists. I figured that they were so brilliant that their critiques would be far more compelling, and I found them really quite shallow recitations of, of the sort of historical faults of the church, which you know, are common knowledge. So I was not very impressed, but I certainly wasn't insulted that some had uh, had taken issue and been critical of the history of, of the church. 
No, and I think often the criticisms take the form of a strange kind of endorsement. But, you know, when Voltaire was mocking Christianity, he would point out the influence of the, the cult of Mithras or something, some surface similarities between that and early Christianity. Well, that merely confirms that it was authentic to the ancient Mediterranean. I, I would think, you know, as a criticism, that cuts both ways. Merely describing the circumstances from which historical religions emerge, to me, as a historian, is a value-neutral thing. You know, there are facts, and then there is the argument over facts, which is interpretation. But you're right. Most of the argument, from, as if there are facts which are so shocking and naughty that they will turn people to atheists overnight, those arguments really haven't changed, you're right, since the 1760s, 1770s. Well, this problem of blasphemy laws, I don't think is going to go away anytime soon because, you know, we have both within the liberal culture of Western Europe and the illiberal ethos of the East, almost a, a collaboration here in terms of restricting free speech, don't you think? Well, I think this is a big question. And there is, a, if the Western education works, if it works, people have developed, accept the idea that no one captures the flag, you know, no one captures the castle with this, but everybody gets a chance. Um, you have to share the space, that means taking the knots. It also means, of course, having the liberty to pursue religion or indeed anything else in your life pretty much as you like. But the price of that freedom is occasionally is interference, as it were, from other people and their opinions. That is a pluralism which is not well established in the world of where Islam is the official religion. It does exist in other places in the East, certainly in the Buddhist world or in India. These things are not as complicated. Um, I think Islam, however, has experienced our ideals of pluralism at the same time as it experienced the loss of power in the world. Dominic, i got to cut yes. you off because we're out of time. We've been discussing quite <laughs> interestingly the problem of blasphemy laws in Europe. Our guest, Dominic Green, Life and Arts Editor at Spectator USA. Dominic, thank you so much for being with us on Freedom's Ring today. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Rhino. Until next week, let freedom ring.